right, welcome back to Colossians after our short break last week. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 22, and we're going to cross over into chapter 4, the last chapter in this, in this book. As you can see, we're, we're close to the end here. So for those of you that started with us in Colossians way back in January, it's already in, what is it, it's June, almost July. It's taken us this long to get through it. Of course, we took a little bit of a break. Colossians chapter 3, verse, uh, verses 22 through chapter 4, verses 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, underneath the middle aisle of rows, there are stacks of Bibles. You are welcome to use that and um, have it as your own as we're reading the scriptures this morning. We use the English Standard Version, ESV. And uh, as always, you can read along with us on the screen. We're going to read these out loud together, starting in verse 22, going through chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather as your church today. We thank you for your word. God, we pray that it would be a, a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that today that we would see in this both uh, your glory, but also, God, that you give us direction for our lives in the here and now. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We pray that the the words of Scripture today and the gospel that we proclaim will both liberate us from wrong thinking, that it would free us to live uh, our lives not to our own selves and by our own means, but, Lord God, that we would live our lives fully in you. We pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen and amen. I got a lot that I want to talk to you all about today. <clears throat> so uh, that's what happens when you don't preach for a week. So I'm not going to give you much uh, in terms of review over where we've been. Obviously, all these sermons are on the, on the website. And so if you want to go back and hear what we've said in regards to connecting all this, then, uh, then I commend you to that. I will say this. Last week, we looked at family. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at family matters. And so Paul was conveying for us what it, what it means to live redemptively in our families as husbands and wives, as children, um, subservient, obedient to parents, and as parents um, over, over our kids. And in this passage of Scripture today, Paul really is continuing that train of thought. He's talking about the household, um, and he's talking about it in the sense of how um, people who are over other people, either as overseers, hear the word used as slave, how Relationship and reconciliation can happen in the household of faith. Now, um, this passage is talking about slaves and, and masters. And what I have to do is, is, is help you see how this would be applicable to our lives in the here and now. That word that you see that we started with, bondservant, uh, the word in the Greek is doulos, which is the word slave. So Paul really is here talking about slaves and masters, but I think uh, there are words here that are applicable to us uh, as a believing community. Um, the filter that we have to get through to understand what he's saying to us in the here and now is the, the filter of, of slavery. Whenever any of us hear the word slave or slavery, our minds automatically revert to all the things that we have seen on TV, read in a book, um, un- understood from our education um, about American slave system. And I would tell you just outrightly, this is first century slavery. This is uh, Greco-Roman slavery, which is very different than what we understand in the American slave system. The American slave system was based upon the transatlantic slave system, where um, Africans and the continent of Africa were uh, sold into slavery by, by chiefs, African chiefs, or they were um, taken by force from their homeland, taken across the seas, and uh, either sold in countries in Europe 
or most notably, um, sold in the South, uh, the, the American South, to work plantations and all those things that made the, uh, the, the beginnings of our country, country grow. Um, the American slave industry was, was racial. And I don't have chapter and verse to, to quote this on, but I think history is replete with examples of how the racism that was lived out in our country, that was birthed and lived out in our country, really the racism that many of us, that, you know, the hints of it that still exist in our country today, have its roots in the, 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 the transatlantic slave trade. It, it all started there, where people of color were subjugated to the, the bondage of slavery. The American slave trade was not just racial, it was for a lifetime. If you were a slave, you were, you were in this bondage of slavery for all of your life. You were subjected to it. Those who initially came over on a boat to America or some other country, you were, um, you were imprisoned in this by force. You couldn't get out. You lived in it. You worked through it. You, had, you, you were possibly married, bore children, and those children were born into slavery, and they did not get out. And lastly, the American slave industry, was, it was forced. Uh, of course, on a plantation, those people who were slaves, were, they were guarded. You, you went to do your work in the cotton fields, the tobacco fields, and there were um, masters, there were uh, white men who held weapons and guns and forced you to do those things that you were called to do to make the, the, the industry go. Here's the, the confusing thing about American slavery, at least for me, and it's that the founders of our country, many of whom call themselves Christians, of course, that the, the history is, you know, we don't know if they actually were Christians, but much of history, their biographies say that they were, as does it say about many who lived in that era. These men who founded our country that penned these great words, listen to this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Y'all remember those words from the Declaration of Independence? The men that penned these same words own slaves. And, of course, in our 20th, 21st century minds, um, I mean, that's, the, that's a contradiction above all contradictions. It just doesn't make sense. And so... The issue of slavery in America really has split, um, it split our country. It split the church. The church has really um, borne as much dysfunction because of the issue of American slavery as anything outside of, of the church. This passage is not talking about the transatlantic slave trade. It's not talking about American slavery. It's talking about first century Roman Greco slavery, which is much different. All right, so three, three quick uh, points about first century slavery, uh, juxtaposing it against what our minds tell us about American slavery. The first is, if you can believe this, it wasn't race-based. Greco-Roman slavery was not race-based. Slaves came from all races, all cultures, all ethnicities, all social classes. If you were a slave in, in the first century, you could actually have your own slave. One scholar estimates that a city like Colossae uh, would have up to one-third of its population could actually be slaves. And much of this um, came about because of the, way, the, the nature of war. A country went to war, of course. Rome was the, the biggest, baddest nation on the earth in the first century. And they would go and they would conquer all these, uh, all these foreign countries, all these territories. Uh, most of the warriors would, uh, would be killed in battle, and they would take all the spoil to include the women and the children, and they would bring them back to uh, these, these home countries, to, to the provinces of Rome, and much of what you, you saw throughout all the provinces, walking around, a third of them possibly could, could be slaves. And so the prevalence of slavery was common in the first century. The second thing is that Roman, uh, Greco-Roman slavery wasn't economically oppressive. And so unlike American slavery, it was, it was more like indentured servitude, where a person had the opportunity to sell themselves into slavery because it might give you a better, a better lifestyle. 
you might be able to sell yourself, contract yourself to work for a person over an extended period of time so that you could take care of yourself, food on your table, clothes on your back, a place to stay, but also you could take care of your family better by selling yourself into, into slavery. We saw that uh, that was quite prevalent. Thirdly, it wasn't lifelong. The average length of time that a, a first century slave subjected themselves to that kind of environment was about 10 to 15 years. 10 to 15 years, and then they could buy themselves or they bought off whatever their contract was and would re, really re-enter life as they knew it before. What's my point in, in bringing up all this and giving you the contrast of the slavery that we know from first century slavery? I, I think it's important for us not to impose um, our thoughts of what slavery is on this text. Okay, So when Paul says bond servants, and, and all that comes after that. Okay, he's, he's talking about slavery, but it's not the same slavery that, that we've read about, that you've seen on TV. And what I, want you, what I don't want you to do is import our cultural assumptions into the Bible. All right, having said that, the Bible does address slavery. It, it does address slavery. It's a sin to enslave people such that you sell other people into a, a, a slave situation. That's 1 Timothy 1.10. The Bible doesn't condone what we see in the American slave system. Um, Jesus, who the, you know, the, the, the focal point of all of Scripture, I would say Paul in all of his writings, Paul being uh, the apostle that wrote most of the New Testament, uh, everything that they wrote stands against what we have known about in the American slave system. Paul writes a book that's, uh, that's very akin to Coloss- uh, the book of Colossians called Philemon, and it's a book about the reconciliation of a slave owner, uh, Philemon, with his slave, Onesimus. Onesimus escaped. He was a typical slave, non-Christian. He gets involved in Paul's ministry. He becomes a Christian. And Paul is encouraging Onesimus to go back to his owner, Philemon, and to serve. And the letter that he writes to Philemon is simply, hey, this guy, Onesimus, I know he was a, just a slave to you, but now he's more than a slave. He's a brother. And so treat him as such. Um, Jesus, uh, Jesus quotes the Shema, the, 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 the commands of Deuteronomy 6, saying, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul. And Jesus says the greatest commandment, uh, along with loving God, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the commands of the New Testament really um, cut the, 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 the premise of the American slave trade off at its heels. All right. So all that said, there really is nowhere in the New Testament that um, the Bible says that we should overthrow slavery. The Bible doesn't say slaves revolt. It, it doesn't say um, that we should have a, a, a civil disturbance because there's slavery in the world. It doesn't mean the Bible is condoning slavery. But I, uh, and of course, this is uh, I'm going to give you what I think in regards to why the Bible doesn't just come out and, and condemn slavery. And I think it's because Christianity is supposed to be uh, this inside out kind of revolution. It's a movement that destroys uh, um, those things that are not right from the inside out. The kingdom of God was meant to be subversive, so to speak. And I think that's what we see here in this in this passage. Paul is commending that. Slaves and slave owners treat each other with mutual respect, with fairness, such that the kingdom of God would be this subversive kind of entity that destroys the, the, uh, the commonplace thing happening in society from the inside out. And we see that. We have seen that several places in American history. If you think of the civil rights movement, of how that came about and and the, and the life that we live because of the civil rights movement back in the, the, the 60s. Uh, the proponent, of course, was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used this book right here. And he was, a, he was an American Baptist preacher. And he used the, the words of Scripture to let a, a white establishment in America know that the very things that were happening, the very laws that, were, that, that, um, that professed, Freedom for all in our country were being violated because people were reading, uh, reading the scriptures wrong. 
you, you, we don't have to look any further than the, the nation of China. Some would tell you that there are right now more Christians than communists in China. And what we see in China is the kingdom of God subversively taking over a country. And I think that's really what Paul is pointing to here in this passage as well. I think the instructions that he's giving us in the context of these of this is that the kingdom of God and the, the Christian life is supposed to be this subversive revolution and movement that takes over from the inside out and completely dismantles anything that's not quite like God would intend it to be. And that's where we enter the text here. And so what I want to convey to you that today is this passage for us is, is really conveying um, that your work is your worship. That your work is your worship. And so I'm going to give you a few questions right off the bat just to whet your appetite as to what we're going to talk about. And, and so the questions I have for you is, is firstly, how do you view your work? I'm not calling you a slave. I'm not calling you a master. If you, if you are in a position that you have people that, that work for you, what I'm asking you to think about, how do you view your work? Here are a few questions. If I were to ask your boss, if you are an employee of someone or a supervisor about you, what would I hear from them? What would they say about you? If I were to ask your employees or a customer, if you're a boss about you, what would I hear? If I, were, if I, if I told the people that you work with that you were a Christian, would that be a surprise to them? If I asked the people if their interaction with you had produced a more favorable opinion of Jesus, how would they answer? What is the attitude of your heart towards your work? Is it an attitude of joy, contentment, humility? Or would you say that your attitude is more one of resentment, bitterness, or apathy? And lastly, do you see your work as your worship? I'm going to explain that phrase here as we go along. Do you see your work as your worship, or do you see it as something you do to simply pay the bills. And so our theme today from this text is that your work is your worship. And I would tell you the biblical view is that worship is good. Worship is good. We can go, uh, we can go to Genesis and see that God made, in the course of making all of creation good, he also made, um, made an avenue for work to be good. Genesis 2.15 says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Adam had a job. He had a job. What would y'all think that Adam's job was? Well, among among many things, Adam was was the vice regent of all that God created. Okay? I mean, Adam was a a man. He had a lot to do. But one of the things that, that... that the scripture writers decided to write down about Adam was that God gave him a job. He was a gardener. He was like tilling the soil and, and doing all the things that you do to keep a garden, a garden going. And this was before sin entered the world. Of course, we cross over to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read a, a quick passage here. We cross over to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They decide to do that, disobeying God. And sin enters the world. Sin enters their lives. Sin enters all of creation. And it affects not just Adam and Eve. They, they are, they're shamed. They're, they know they're naked. They cover up. They hide from each other. They hide from God. But it also enters into creation. And the next thing that God does, he, he, he seeks them. He talks to them. And he curses them. He curses the serpent. He curses Eve. And this is the curse that he places on Adam. This is Genesis. This is not going to be on the screen. This is Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. God cursed the ground. He goes on to explain, in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In pain, you shall eat from the ground. That means the ground's going to be hard. It's not going to give way when you want it to give way. When you need it to rain to replenish the earth, to, to water your seed, it's not going to do that. When you don't want it to rain, a monsoon's going to happen. This is, like, this is like Murphy's Laws in effect. The thing that you don't want to happen is going to happen. This is, what, this is the curse that God put on the earth, and it's a curse on Adam's work. 
He continues, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. If you're a gardener, do you want thorns and thistles in your ground? Absolutely not. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. That means it's going to be labor, hard labor for Adam just to make, just to make food from the ground to eat it. And then he finishes by saying, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for your dust and to dust you shall return. This, this is saying. That everything that Adam does to tend for to tend to the things that God has for him to do, but also to even care for himself and for his family is going to be hard work. What this translates for us is not just Murphy's Law, but all the things that we do to tend to ourselves and to care for the things that, that God has put in us just to survive is going to be hard work associated with it. If you're a person that likes to dance and you're supposed to float through the air to, you know, to, to dance for a living, then, then the work for you is that God has created gravity and it's going to bring you back down to the ground. If you work in an office, typing, doing all the things in the office, that means you're going to have office politics. It's going to weigh down on you. It means that if you are in the agricultural field, when you wanted the rain, it's not going to rain. When you don't want the rain, it's going to be a monsoon. It's going to be hard work. That's what this curse was for Adam. But not only does Genesis convey that Adam's work was a curse, I mean, we have to we have to keep um, we have to keep into perspective. God did call Adam to work and he didn't take away the good aspect of his work. Work is a curse, but it's also it also continues to be Adam's calling. Acts 17, 28 says these words. This is one of my my favorite scriptures. I probably say this. I probably squeeze this verse into every sermon I preach. Y'all are probably tired of hearing this. This, this particular set of scripture verses, but I just like it because it says so much to me. Verse 28, and he made from one man every nation, uh, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Among other things, this, is, this verse is saying that God is sovereign. That he is he is superintending over his world to situate you in the era where you would live. I mean, right here in the midst of the 21st century, that he would prescribe even in your decisions of where you live, the neighborhood, the city, the neighbors that you would have. And I would I would beg to say that this also extends to your work, that thing that you feel is your life's calling, the the, the place where you get up and go and, and spend the, the, the strength of your day that God is that he's assigning all those things in this verse. And so God has not only cursed our work to make it hard, but it, it's still a calling. These two things work in balance with each other and we'll deal with them all the rest of our days. And so as we enter, we haven't even entered the text yet. We're going to get there. All right. All that as a segue into um, talking about work. Three points I want to make from this passage. Just three points. The first is simply this. Uh, Paul tells us how we are to work, how we are to work. Uh, verse 22. He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And so if you ask yourself the question, how are you to work? The answer is you're to work hard. This verse says you are to work hard. I mean, anybody here want to work hard? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, right? This verse here says, work hard. I like what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 10. You all know the story of Solomon. Uh, he was the, the favorite son of King David. And when uh, David allowed Solomon to take over the throne, um, Solomon had a, uh, an encounter with God. God comes to him and says, Solomon, ask of me anything that you would want. And instead of asking for riches and great fame, Solomon asked for wisdom and God gives it to him. 
And then he says, because you haven't asked for this, I'm going to give you not only the, the wisdom that you want so that you can lead well, but I'm going to give you also the things that you have not asked. And he gave him fame and riches and, of course, a great kingdom. And Solomon, in uh, a couple of books of the Bible, notably Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and also most of the Proverbs that we read, has collected all this wisdom. And, and this is what Solomon said he did in Ecclesiastes. He experimented in everything. He said, I'm going to set my mind to exploring uh, what is the meaning of life. And he ended up saying that most of it's vain. It's just vain. It's meaningless. But he did have a couple of nuggets. And this is one of the nuggets. In verse, verse 10, he says, whatever your, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. That means you're, do it with all of your strength. Do it with the, the best of the, that you can give to it. For there's, no, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, in hell, to which you're going. I mean, when you really look at it, this is kind of a morbid verse. Seriously, he's talking about work hard because, you know, in the end, life is short and you're going to die. That's what he's saying. He's saying work hard. Do whatever is available and within your ability to do it. He's saying live. uh, Your lives should be active. They should be energetic. They should be practical. Why? Because life is short and you're going to die. Because death is the end of any opportunity for you to to, to spend your strength on something worthwhile. And, of course, this isn't a a view that's saying eternity is is a waste of your time. But what it's saying is the life that God has given us on the earth in the here and now is an important existence as well. And so use it to the best of your ability. Give your give your might to give your strength to it. What is working hard? I think this verse tells us that we're supposed to work hard. If we go back to verse 22 and then Paul lays out four things I think are are pertinent for us to to think about a little bit in terms of what it looks like for us. To work hard. First of all, he says that we should obey in everything. If you have an employer, you go to work and you work for someone, he says you should do, you should, you should obey in everything. And I think this means that bosses gain our allegiance and our loyalty. And even as I say that, I, you know, I, I always say th- those two things are earned, that you don't necessarily, um, you know, give someone your loyalty unless they've earned it first. But what Paul is saying here. Really, is they happen. They have to happen at the same time. Where if you are submitted to someone who's over you as an employer, then you have to give them the allegiance of good work and the loyalty loyalty of doing all those things that you're asked to do in a manner that's worthy, not just of whatever the rules are, but of of the Lord. And at the same time, that that employer is doing the same thing to you in the way that he treats you, the fair ways that he gives you. So obey in everything. Then he says, not by way of eye service. When I think of this, I think about a little kid rolling their eyes when their when their parent tells them to do something. They don't want to do it. It's like, you know, some of y'all can roll your eyes pretty good. Not by way of eye service. This, this means don't be superficial. Don't just go through the motions. It's that thing that you absolutely don't want to do at home, at work, but you need to do it. Don't just go through the motions. Put a little bit of your heart into it, even if you don't want to do it. Then he says, don't be people pleasers, which means don't be deceptive to gain favor. This is putting on a smile when your boss is around. This is saying the right thing that you might think might get you a raise. This is pushing other people aside to make yourself look good in front of whoever the person is with the authority and with the power. Paul's saying, don't do that. And lastly, and I think this is the most important part here in this particular phrase. He says, do it, serve, obey with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The word heart here is the word cardia. Cardia means, you know, it means heart, but it's the central it's the central core of who you are. He's saying put your heart into your service as an employee. And then these these words, of course, fearing the Lord means our work should be in view of our relationship to Jesus. Our work should be in view of our relationship to Jesus. Everything that we do 
We all, I mean, we're always accountable, not just to those who are right in front of us, those who pay our paycheck, those who set the rules. We are accountable to someone who's much higher. We're accountable to the Lord. That's what he's saying. Your worth, your labor, what you do from nine to five is done in view of the Lord. It's him that you're serving. And so Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, you don't work hard because your boss is watching. If you're a Christian, you don't work hard because you don't slack off. Um, you don't not slack off because the, the boss is right there eyeing you. You do it because God is watching. God, God is watching. He's over your shoulder um, encouraging you to do what's right because it's right to do. Because you do it in view of the Lord. Every aspect of your life is governed by your relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, your work is your worship. You're worshiping Jesus as part of the work that he would have you to do. That's the first thing that Paul is showing us here. The second thing is simply this. He's showing us who do we work for? Who do we work for? Verse 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Who do we work for? Paul says we work for God. We work for God. The word heartily here is it's not the word heart, it's the Greek word suke, which means soul. And so in verse 22, he says, put your heart into it. In verse 23, he says, put your soul into it. And we could usually, uh, those verses are interchangeable. I mean, those words are interchangeable. Uh, cardia and suke, heart and soul. What he's saying is, whatever you got, put it into your service as an employee, because you do it not with the mindset of, of you're serving a person. You're not serving flesh. You're serving the Lord. Now, I think a good question to ask in regards to this verse is, do you work harder when you're being directly supervised than when you're not being supervised? I mean, you ever you ever come across that person that that does what they're supposed to do when the boss is not when, when the boss is around. But as soon as the boss disappears, surfing the Internet, calling on the phone, taking a long lunch break, you know, I mean. What else do we do? If you're a salaried worker, or like you're on salary and you don't have to punch a clock when you go to work so you can just show up when you want. You can take a lunch break because nobody's looking over your shoulder trying to say, do this, do this, do this. You leave whenever you want to as long as you, I mean, you're under control of, of whatever the, the things are that you have to do in your particular job. And so the question for you would be, I mean, who are you accountable to? If, if it seems like in your job, you have a lot of authority and you're not accountable to anybody that's like hovering over you, making you do the things that you do. Who do you feel like you're accountable to? And then, of course, if you if you're a, a person that actually goes and, and punches the clock. I, I used to work at McDonald's. I worked at McDonald's for three years when I was in high school and uh, made my own money, did my own thing. But yeah, this is the deal with our hourly jobs. You ever have this like this this thing at work that you that. There's somebody coming after you. So like you're going to work for four hours from 12 to four. And then somebody's going to come behind you and work from four to eight. And they do the exact same thing that you do. And you just, you know, you just it perpetuates as the day goes on. And you just decide, you know what? I don't like to do that. So I'm, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to leave it for the next person to do. So, I mean, it's, it, this would be that. This would be don't do that. Do, have a perspective of you're not. Punching a clock, you know, for your own sake. You're doing it in view of the Lord. You're working in view of the Lord. God is looking. He's watching. It's, it's, you, it's him that you work for. And so if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, Paul's exhortation here is that even if the people around you are slacking off, not doing what they're supposed to do, then your perspective should be don't join in. Because it's not the person in front of you, your boss, or anybody else that you're working for. Your view should be that you're working for the Lord. Your work is part of your worship. Now, this, this exhortation doesn't just apply to employees, though. If we skip down to verse, uh, verse 1 in chapter 4, it is also applies to bosses. In, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so if you're a Christian boss... The exhortation here is that bosses, you also have somebody that you work for. I would I would beg to say everybody that exists on this planet works for somebody. Nobody's autonomous. 
even the president of the United States, who we often say is the most powerful man in the whole world. He works for somebody. Actually, he works for y'all. He works for you. You vote him into office and, and we can vote a president out of office. Paul is saying, bosses, you have a boss. And here's the here's the easy thing for for those of you that that have authority that that oversee other people is it's easy to put yourself first. It's it's easy to resent your the people that work for you when they don't, simply don't do what you say do and do it as quickly as you want to do it. It's easy to to, to manipulate them. It's easy to to not be fair and, and just with those that are serving you because they get a wage from it. And so Paul is saying, don't do that. He's saying, masters, your responsibility is to be uh, to be just and to be fair. Why is that? Because you who have authority also are under authority. And that authority is come. It's the ultimate authority. It's Jesus himself. Paul urges you don't uh, don't be unfair. Don't be unjust because you can. It's easy for us to do that. I would recommend that those of you who have authority over other people to see yourself as a shepherd, to actually see yourself as a pastor who is caring for the lives and the livelihood of those who are entrusted to your care. So what does that look like? It means that you are challenging them in terms of their own personal development, that you're working to grow them in their character, that you're offering them an honest wage. That you're giving them uh, an opportunity to be evaluated fairly. And then when the shoe, you know, when when in, in those cases, when they aren't doing the things that they're supposed to do, that would be when you do something otherwise to to chastise them or to to reprimand them. But the expectation here is that your responsibility as an employee or as an employer over employees is that you treat them fairly and justly. And so Paul says, how do we work? We work hard. Who do we work for? We work for the Lord. And thirdly, in verse 20, 23 through 25, he reminds us, um, what do we work for? What do we work for? Verse 23, starting here, says, whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are, all, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And there is no partiality. There's a lot here that we could talk about, but I think what Paul is conveying here more than anything else is that when we ask the question, who do we work for? He reminds us that we work for the right reward, that there is in the Christian life a reward of sorts for the work that we do on earth. There, there are really two main judgments that are pertinent to the Christians in the Bible. If you go to Revelations uh, chapter 20, verse 11, we aren't going to go there. But that the first of, of the judgments that you should really concern yourself is called the great white throne judgment. And the question that the great white throne judgment um, answers is, it asks rather, is what will you do with Jesus? And so Revelation 20 this scene of an angel bringing the book of life and he opens it and he's reading off all the names of those who are in the book of life from the beginning of time until those who have at some point in their life professed faith in Jesus, gone on to, to death or have entered eternity. And of course, the, the end is coming. The end of the age is coming. And so he's calling off all those grand names that will be with the Lord Forever. And this judgment, of course, is the, the judgment of God's wrath on those that it could be said haven't sufficiently dealt with the Jesus question. And so in the great, great white throne judgment, what have you done with Jesus? Is Jesus just a name to you? Is Jesus just another God? Is he a good man? Is, is there another God that you worship or is Jesus perhaps the one that forgives you of your sin and reconciles you to God so that you'll have 
life everlasting with him. This is the question of the great white throne judgment. And so Paul encourages us, not necessarily in this passage, but in, in the in the assumption of it, he's saying there's judgment coming. The first is a true judgment. And unless you've answered that question correctly, what will you do with Jesus? Then that judgment will be you assuming the very wrath of God. The second judgment that the Bible says is pertinent to Christians is a judgment that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And in this judgment, Paul speaks of uh, uh, the judgment seat of Christ. And he likens it to a Roman governor who's over his city and is simply um, being the judge over, over trials that come from the people in his province. And he says uh, very simply that we as Christians will be rewarded for the good, the, the, the work that we have done in this life. And so from the very begin, beginning to the end of your Christian life, God has given us things to do. There are spiritual gifts that he gives you. There's kind deeds that he expects you to do. There's people that he puts in front of your way. There's work. You get up and go to work. You do all kinds of things from the beginning of your life to the end of your life. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that there is a reward for those things that you do. We don't actually know exactly what that's going to look like, how it's going to be meted out. If you're going to get something tangible, if it will just be a crown on your head, if, you know, the, the saints in heaven are going to applaud you. We don't know what that is. Paul doesn't articulate. But there will be a reward. And so the question is, uh, how will you what, what, do, what did you do with your life? That will be the question that Paul will ask. Well, that, 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 that the, the saints in heaven will ask as we enter eternity. How faithful have we been to use our time? How well have we pursued the opportunities that God has given us? How single-minded have we been in our Christian service? There's rewards in heaven. Um, most of you know the, the scripture verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves is the gift of God. Which means that our salvation comes to us not by anything good that we do. We can't work our way into heaven. We can't work our way into a relationship with God. It comes simply by trusting in Jesus, who died on the cross in our place for our sin. The little-known verse that we don't pay attention to, pay attention to oftentimes is Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so here's the deal. We, we don't get saved by doing good works, but God created us to do good works. There are good works that we're supposed to do. You become a Christian, God gives you his spirit. He puts something in you that would want you to do things for the namesake of Jesus Christ. And those are good works. And this verse says that God has prepared us in advance for those things. And so I would tell you, your, your life is not just about waking up, going to work, working nine to five, coming home and living to yourself. This verse and others like it say that God has purposed us to do work for him, for his kingdom. And in the likes of uh, verse 23 to 25, there's a reward associated with it. All right. So you wake up tomorrow morning. You do a little quiet time, pray a little bit. And just by chance, because it's going to be a good, bright, sunny day, you're thinking about all the things that Jeff preached on Sunday. And so here's what I want you to think about. Um, it's like, so, so what, how can I make this practical? Right? Like you want to make this practical. This is probably the, the most practical text in all of Colossians, along with what we talked about two weeks ago. And so I got four scenarios that, that really might fit into your situation. Four, four scenarios that, that may reflect where you are um, in life in regards to work. The first is my boss is terrible. All right. So. I don't want to embarrass you. Who here would be brave enough to say, gosh, yeah, my boss is terrible. All right. We got some of those. Absolutely. All right. So my boss is terrible means that I resent the person. I just have a hard time going to work. It's an it's a it maybe an unfair or unjust environment. The person may be a, a micromanager. Uh, I recall my first three years in the army. I almost got out of the army after those first three years because my my boss, my captain commander 
was a micromanager. He was a bully. And I said, well, if I'm going to grow up and be like that, I don't, do, I don't want anything to do with the Army. It was a miserable three years for me. Fortunately, I had a, a mentor, another guy that said, don't base the whole Army off of one person. Go to a different assignment, different post, and you'll have a different experience. And that was true. 17 years later, 17 years later I'm, a little, you know, I'm, I'm still in the Army doing my thing. And then I got to Iraq, and I said, all right, this is enough. My boss is terrible. Uh, what I would encourage you here <clears throat> is, is, first of all, um, we're talking about slavery here. You're not a slave. Slavery is illegal in America. You know, there's a lot of slavery in our world today. But slavery is illegal in America. And so if it's really that bad, uh, remember, you're not a slave. You can actually quit your job and go seek another. So don't, that's always an option for you. But just shy of that, I think a gospel-centered perspective on, on you and your job is, is simply this. First of all, your work is your worship. And so you, you have to make an effort to worship as you're going to work. And that may make you not think about yourself, but think more about your boss. And here's the thing about your boss. Your boss is just like you. First of all, he or she is a sinner. He or she is a sinner, and they sin. Sinners sin, right? The, the other thing is that your boss um, needs the transforming grace of God in his or her life. And perhaps, I'm not saying this is definite, perhaps you're there in that environment that you might be, that you might be one, of those, one of those things that God has placed in, in this environment to pray for your boss, that he might have an encounter, a redemptive encounter with the God who saves. And so Jesus said, um, pray for those who persecute you. He said that for a reason. Why did he say it? Because it's going to happen. So I would commend you to that. Um, I hate my job. Some of you, anybody hate their job? Anybody hate? Nobody hates their job? That's cool. All right. You hate your boss, don't hate your job. Um, this would be the, uh, the, the, uh, the occasion of it's just not a right job fit. Um, not just, you know, you don't, you don't like the things that you do, but it's just not right for you. And I would tell you, this is my only caution in this regard. Uh, there is an idol in America, and that idol in America is called entitlement. And this is how entitlement plays out. Uh, we, the, the idol is simply this. An idol is something that you worship above God. And the idol would be pleasing myself, making myself happy. And so... Uh, the American idol is, if I'm not happy in my job, I just quit and go get another one. If I'm not happy in my marriage, I just quit and go get another one. If I'm not happy in my recreation, I quit and go do something else. And this is the deal. If your work is your worship, then sometimes you have to worship despite how you feel. Abby said that in, in, our, in our worship time this morning. Sometimes you just don't feel like worshiping, but oftentimes worship isn't just what you feel. Sometimes you have to do it and the feeling comes along afterwards, or maybe it might not. And so if your work is part of your worship, then be careful. Caution yourself that you're not worshiping this idol of fulfilling yourself. And of course, again, I would, I would encourage you, if you hate your job, then you can always quit and go find another one. Maybe not in this economy, but maybe in a different day. Thirdly, I love my job. This is the one that, that affects me. I love my job. It's like... I get up in the morning, it's like, yes, I get to go to work again. Anybody like that? Perhaps. All right, Joseph. Some, that's a couple of y'all. It's okay to love your job. My son back there says, I love my job. What's your job, John? Going to school, studying? Mm-hmm. He's got some good grades. All right, so I love my job means, I mean, you've worked your whole, I mean, things are just happening. It's flowing. You've, it's a right fit. You're, you've been promoted to the, the place that you are. I mean, it's, this stuff is happening. It's, it's just right. And here's, the, here's the, the word for us. We're supposed to go to work worshiping, not worship our work. Okay? And that's, if you love your job, it's easy to worship your work. In fact, what I have to be careful with is not worshiping my work more than I take care of my family. Because if you are a person that loves your job, that is our tendency. That we would place the priorities of work over the priority of, of, of you know, the, the most important thing that God, and from God's perspective is taking care of your family. 
Worship God. Don't worship your work. Lastly, if you are boss here and you got somebody that you need to fire, I just simply say, fire them for the glory of God. <laughs> Absolutely. Fire for the glory of God. This is the problem with Christians. Y'all are too nice. Y'all are nice. I have this problem, too. I'm just too nice. And I'm a, little, I'm a people pleaser of sorts, okay? And most Christians, y- y'all are people pleasers, okay? And so if you're a Christian boss and you got some people that just, you, you don't want to lose your witness, you don't want you know, you to put a bad light on your Christianity or even maybe your company is a Christian company. And you, sometimes we just we fail to do the things that make sense to do for the betterment of the, the company and even for the person by just firing them. Say, hey, you're the wrong fit. You're not working hard enough. See you. All right. So chapter four, verse one gives us the, the, the parameters for this fairly and, and, and justly. If you have given a good wage, if you're evaluating, if you're putting into the person's character and the person's not working out, fire to the glory of God. Amen. <laughs> All right. What's important here? I think the important thing for us is, is simply this. Um, your job is not the most important. The way you work, how much you make, your status, your title at work is not the most important thing about your work. What's the most important thing is that you're a Christian, is that you are a believer in Jesus. And your faith in Jesus uh, sets the boundaries for all those things that you do, not just at work, but your whole life. And so don't go to work worshiping your work. Go to work worshiping. Romans 12, 1 is the gauge here. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And all that you do, go, let your life be a, a product of worship, of the God that you worship. Go to work worshiping. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've made us, that you've put worship in us, that you've made us to be worshipers. And we repent for those times that we, that our worship gets uh, misaligned, that we worship the things that you give us to do instead of worshiping you. Father, we repent for those of us here who just haven't put enough into the things that you've given us to do. We've slacked off. We've been poor workers. We've had poor opinions of those who are over us. We have not set a good example. We have not been good witnesses. For those of us who are bosses, who have authority over other people in here, we ask your forgiveness for those ways that we have lorded over those people who are serving us. We haven't challenged them in their character. We haven't treated them fairly and justly. We've been poor bosses. God, help us to see that our work is our worship, that all of our life is worship, and work is just a part of that. Help us to see that you've called us to work heartily as in working for you. God, help us, give us the courage, and give us the wherewithal to put both our heart and our soul into our work, this, this life's work that you've given us. And then, Lord God, we stand back and we await the reward that comes when we're with you in heaven working for for eternity. We pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen and amen.